You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 180, John Paul Jones raids Whitehaven. France's decision to enter the war with Britain drastically changed this situation for the Americans who were already in Europe. Up until that time, the American diplomats and naval officers had to dance around French efforts to keep the peace with Britain, while at the same time trying to provoke as much trouble as possible. Britain finally declared war on France after France signed the Treaty of Alliance in early 1778. Once they were at war, American warships could unleash unrestricted warfare against Britain and use French ports for repairs and safe harbor. Of course, the declaration of war also meant that the British fleet would be on high alert and would dominate the waters around Britain against any potential enemies. One of those enemies was a young man seeking to make a name for himself in the Continental Navy by the name of John Paul Jones. Since Jones later becomes affectionately known as the father of the U.S. Navy, we should take a moment to understand where he came from. John Paul was born to a Scottish family near the border between England and Scotland. His family surname was Paul. He added Jones later for reasons that I will address in a moment. His father was a gardener on a large estate although probably a more accurate title today would be landscape architect. He managed the construction and maintenance of large elaborate gardens for a wealthy lord. John Paul had no interest in the family business and wanted to become an officer in the British Navy. Unlike the Army, British naval commissions were possible for commoners and did not require a family fortune. They did, however, usually require connections which the Paul family did not have. Instead, at age 13, Paul signed aboard a merchant vessel. His enthusiasm and an understanding of mathematics encouraged one of the officers to teach him some maritime navigation skills. Ordinarily, officers did not want sailors to understand navigation. They might be more likely to mutiny if they did not need officers to get them home again but Paul was clearly destined for something more than just a sailor. After serving on several ships' crews on trips to the Americas, Paul got his big break when the ship's captain and first mate aboard the John died from yellow fever while returning from the West Indies. Paul successfully navigated the ship home and was rewarded by the owners by giving him command of the ship. It was 1768, and Paul was only 21 years old. Captain Paul got a reputation as a strict and fastidious ship's captain. Merchant vessels at the time often resorted to violent force to control their crews. Corporal punishment was common. On one voyage to the West Indies, 
Captain Paul had cause to have a carpenter's mate by the name of Mungo Maxwell flogged. While the ship was in Tobago, Maxwell filed a complaint against Paul for assault and abuse. A local admiralty court held that the beating was reasonable and acquitted Paul. Maxwell then left the ship to take another ship back to Scotland. Paul also returned to Scotland with his cargo. But upon arrival, the sheriff met him and arrested him. Maxwell had died on his return voyage. His family believed his death was the result of Paul's flogging and wanted him arrested for murder. Paul was able to obtain bail and returned to Tobago to get a copy of the Admiralty Court's verdict there. He also obtained the testimony of the captain of the ship on which Maxwell had died. That captain testified that Maxwell had died from a fever and low spirits, not from the flogging. Therefore, Paul eventually got the charges dismissed. A couple of years later, Paul found himself back in the West Indies facing another problem crew. Paul's cargo had spoiled and he was unable to pay his crew. Several sailors broke into the ship's store of liquor, got drunk and violent, and demanded their pay. One of the larger sailors came after Paul with a club. Paul grabbed a sword from his cabin, and after being backed up by the crew member, ran the man through, killing him. This time, Paul did not trust the legal system to acquit him. The dead man was a local on the small island and had a great many friends. Upon advice from some of his own friends, Paul abandoned the ship and found passage on another ship to Virginia. He arrived there on the run and almost broke in 1774. He adopted the name Paul Jones in order to avoid anyone looking for a fugitive murderer named John Paul. Jones attempted to start a new life in America. His older brother had moved to Virginia years earlier, but he had died before John's arrival. Jones also made new connections, relying in part on his Masonic membership as an introduction. He eventually settled in Philadelphia. When war broke out in 1775, Jones probably could have gotten a lucrative position running a privateer vessel. But instead, he wanted a commission in the Continental Navy. Thanks to the patronage of Virginia delegate Richard Henry Lee, the Marine Committee offered Jones the command of the Providence a smaller ship in the new fleet. Jones rejected the offer out of a concern that he was inexperienced with a type of sail that the ship used. He later said that he regretted that refusal. Instead, Jones took an assignment as a lieutenant aboard the larger ship, the Alfred, which was Commodore Isaac Hopkins's flagship. The Alfred was a relatively new ship built as a merchant ship in 1774. Its owner, Robert Morris, who served on the Marine Committee, sold the ship to the Navy in 1775. Captain Dudley Saltonstall captained the Alfred. Saltonstall had been an experienced merchant captain, and he was also the brother-in-law of Silas Dean. As a lieutenant, Jones sailed the Alfred to the Bahamas for the raid that I discussed back in episode 84. I mentioned in that episode that on the return trip, the fleet encountered a British warship, the Glasgow, but was unable to capture it. Commodore Hopkins took great criticism for that failure, and one of his critics was John Paul Jones. Although he tried to be respectful to his commander, Jones made clear that the leadership during the mission was definitely lacking. 
he wrote to a member of the Marine Committee in Congress about both Commodore Hopkins and Captain Saltonstall. Following that raid, Congress commissioned several more ships. After the captain of the Providence moved to a larger ship, Congress once again offered command of the Providence to Jones. This time, he accepted. With his own command, Captain Jones spent the summer of 1776 around Long Island, New York, transporting soldiers and escorting merchant ships as everyone awaited the British fleet which prepared to invade New York that fall. Later, Jones sailed down to the West Indies, capturing several British merchant ships and dodging the much larger British warships. In the fall, he sailed northward around Nova Scotia to avoid the hurricane season to the south, and there he captured several more prizes. Unlike your average privateer, though, Jones was interested in more than just prizes. He raided the fishing village of Canso, destroying a fishery and taking on additional sailors. He also captured 16 fishing ships, six of which he was able to sail back to New England. Jones also received word that more than 100 American prisoners were being used as slave labor in the coal pits on Cape Breton. He tried to organize a fleet to rescue them. In pursuit of this, he was given charge of the Alfred and the Hamden, along with his own ship, the Providence. However, he couldn't find enough crew to sail all three ships. Initially, he put his crew aboard the larger Alfred and sailed off along with the Hampton, leaving the Providence behind. But after the captain of the Hampton crashed his ships on some rocks, the ship returned to leave the Hampton in for repairs, and they all departed again, this time on the Alfred and the Providence. As Jones sailed north in November, he encountered an American privateer vessel called the Eagle. A search of the ship turned up two deserters from the Continental Navy. Jones took the two men, as well as 20 others, as punishment for hiding the deserters. Later, they captured a valuable British transport ship. By this time, though, it was mid-November, and sailing off the coast of Canada was getting pretty miserable in those wooden, unheated ships. One night, the Providence simply turned around and sailed for home, leaving Jones on the Alfred on his own. Jones pressed on, although the crew of the Alfred was getting more mutinous each day. The Alfred captured three more ships carrying coal for the British and learned that the prisoners at Cape Breton were already gone. Jones sent the coal ships to New England and raided Canso once again to destroy an oil warehouse there. As they were returning to New England, the Alfred and her prize ships encountered another British warship. Since it was almost dark, Jones put a lantern on the Alfred and sent the prize ships off in another direction. As he hoped, the British followed his ship and allowed the prizes to escape. Jones then outran the British, who gave up the chase after another day. When Jones finally returned to Boston in late September, he had another greeting. The sheriff had a complaint for his arrest. The owner of the Eagle had launched a complaint for the sailors that he had kidnapped at sea. Jones drew his sword on the sheriff and made clear that he would not be arrested. He did, however, agree to remain in town. While there, Jones filed a countersuit against the owner for inducing sailors to desert the Navy. Eventually, the courts threw out both lawsuits. In the meantime, though, Jones had a more important fight. 
In October, Congress had issued a seniority list of naval captains. Jones was number 18 of 24 on the list, behind many men that he regarded as inferiors. Jones did not learn about the list until January 1777. Jones had taken command of the Providence in May 1776, but only as acting captain. When he took command of the Alfred in August, the Marine Committee had written on the back of his commission that he had been made captain in August. While in Boston, he met with John Hancock and requested his commission be rewritten to reflect that he had become captain in May when he took command of the Providence. However, when he got his commission back the day before he was about to leave Boston, he discovered that his commission date was listed as October 10th. It was based on that date that Congress drew up its seniority list. Jones was understandably upset, but he really couldn't do anything about it. Command of the Alfred went to a more senior captain, and Jones spent several months in Boston without any ship at all. There, he got involved with one of the local Masonic lodges and struck up a friendship with Phyllis Wheatley, the former slave who had become a well-known poet. Jones fancied himself a poet as well, and the two enjoyed an exchange of poetry. It's unclear if they had a romantic relationship, although some have speculated that there was. In May 1777, Congress ordered Jones to make his way to France. There, the American commissioners had contracted to build several larger warships, and he would finally be given a respectable command. However, a disagreement with the captain who was supposed to take him to France delayed Jones's departure. Finally, in June, Congress granted Jones command of the 20-gun ship Ranger, and he used that to sail to France. However, when he arrived in Portsmouth in July, he found that his ship had been stripped by a more senior Navy captain. Jones had to waste more time trying to refit the Ranger, which proved difficult given the lack of supplies available in New England. It wasn't until November that the Ranger finally made its way out to sea. As it crossed the Atlantic, it discovered a merchant fleet. The men sailed toward the ships, hoping for some prizes, only to discover that the fleet was under the protection of the 74-gun Invincible. Jones wisely pretended to just be a part of the fleet until dark, and then quietly slipped away without a fight. Finally, in early December, Jones reached France. There, he found more frustration. The British had threatened an Amsterdam shipbuilder who was building the ship that was to become Jones's command that the builder would suffer consequences if it turned over the ship to the Americans. So instead, France purchased the ship. Jones made his way to Paris and then Passay, awaiting a command. While there, he befriended Edward Bancroft, who served as a secretary to the American commissioners. You may also recall from other episodes that Bancroft was a British spy. Over that winter, as Jones waited for a larger ship, he had the Ranger re-outfitted with better rigging and had other improvements made. In April 1778, the Ranger set sail. By this time, France and Britain were at war, and there was no longer the need to play any diplomatic games to satisfy French officials. Jones planned to sail up the channel between England and Ireland, looking to cause as much fear and chaos as he could. 
Unlike earlier raids, though, Jones was not just after shipping. He wanted to conduct raids on the British mainland as well. During his months in France, Jones had learned about the many American sailors who were being held prisoner in Britain. Most of them were from captured privateer ships and were being held as criminals on charges of piracy. Britain was not executing any of them, mostly out of fear that the Americans would retaliate with their prisoners. But the men were being held in miserable condition. Further, the Navy desperately needed more sailors. Jones concocted a plan to land near his childhood home on the Scottish border. His first goal was to destroy the ships there, mostly smaller fishing vessels. Next, he would sail across the inlet and kidnap the local laird in Scotland. As a peer, the British would likely trade many American sailors for the return of this Scottish laird. Before he could do any of this, though, Jones had to convince his own crew. Most of his men wanted to go after prizes so they would get a share of the booty. Kidnapping and destruction brought no profit. Even Jones's own first mate, Lieutenant Simpson, was not happy about the plan. Now, the original plan that had when the Rangers sailed from America was that Jones would take command of the larger warship in France and that Simpson would become captain of the Ranger. So when that larger ship did not materialize, Jones remained in command of the Ranger and Simpson remained first mate. The New England officers and crew were not happy with this Scottish captain, who they saw as more interested in settling old scores in his hometown than in seizing prizes. After only a few days at sea, Jones's crew mutinied and attempted to take over the ship. Jones had received advance tip from a loyal member of the crew, and the tipster let him know that while the officers did not participate in the mutiny, they agreed to make themselves scarce while it happened. When the attack came, Jones was armed with a sword and pistol and was able to force the mutineers to back off. He did not try to lock up or punish anyone for the incident, but tried to put it behind him and continue on with the mission. Before Jones reached Whitehaven, he got word from a local fisherman that the HMS Drake was nearby, just across the Irish Sea. Although the Drake was a larger ship with more guns than the Ranger, Jones hoped to sail up next to it at night, board her, and take the crew by surprise. The Ranger sailed into the port that night. Jones gave the order to drop anchor right next to the ship so that they could board. The man responsible to drop the anchor did not do so until the ships were too far apart to board. By the time they turned around to try again, the winds had shifted and dawn was approaching. They opted to sail out to sea and escape rather than be discovered. A few days later, the ranger reached Whitehaven, again under the cover of darkness. The crew landed in two longboats with the intention of burning the 200 to 400 ships and boats that were in the harbor. The landing party surprised the guards of the fort and spiked the cannons. The landing had taken longer than expected, and the lanterns they planned to use to start the fires on all the boats had run out of fuel. The crew then broke into a tavern to find more fuel. Instead, the sailors opted to remain in the tavern and get drunk. By the time they returned, it was almost dawn. As the crew began to set a larger ship full of coal on fire, an alarm rang out in the village. One of Jones's crew was an Irishman who had signed up pretty much for the sole purpose of getting home. 
Deciding that Whitehaven was close enough, the man slipped away from the landing party and started banging on doors to alert the locals to the burning ships in the harbor. With the locals turning out, the crew had to jump back in their longboats and row back to the ranger. Once aboard, the ranger sailed across the Firth for the final stop in Jones's plan, to kidnap the Earl of Selkirk. Jones went ashore with his crew. Pretending to be a British press gang, Jones interrogated one of the locals. It turned out, to his disappointment, that the Earl was not at home. Jones at that point wanted to return to his ship, but his crew had other plans. The crew, which had still captured nothing of value on the voyage, insisted on going to loot the Earl's home. Jones, in his later recollections, said he did not want to allow this, thinking it would harm his reputation. At the same time, he thought the crew might kill him and go loot the home anyway if he completely refused. So instead, he permitted the men to go to the home without him and demand that they turn over the family silver. And that's what the men did. The Lady Selkirk, who was home at the time and pregnant, complied with their demands and turned over the silver. Everyone returned to the ship and sailed away. Next, Jones encountered the British warship Drake again. This time, though, they were in open sea and the British were ready for them. The British had 200 men aboard ship and hoped to board the Ranger and capture the ship and crew. Jones was able to keep them at a distance as the two ships exchanged fire. The British captain was killed in this exchange and the ship eventually struck her colors. So Jones took the larger ship as a prize. He gave command of the Drake to Lieutenant Simpson as they went in search of other ships in the area. Almost as soon as he got aboard, though, Simpson had no interest in looking for other ships and instead sailed away for France, leaving the Ranger on its own. Jones sailed after the Drake, eventually catching up with it only when the two ships had returned to France. Jones had Lieutenant Simpson thrown in jail and brought up on charges of insubordination. Simpson reached out to John Adams, who by this time was in France as a member of the American delegation. Adams supported his fellow New Englander. He got Simpson released and the charges dismissed. Adams's account of the event was that Jones had Simpson arrested so that he could take all the glory for the mission. Despite the failure to burn the fleet at Whitehaven and the failure to capture the Earl of Selkirk, Patriots celebrated the mission as a success for the capture of the British warship, the Drake. Well, at least the French and Franklin celebrated the event. The other American delegates, Arthur Lee and John Adams, mostly gave Jones a hard time over the treatment of his officers and for spending too much money on the crew. They turned over the Ranger to the command of Captain Simpson, and Jones once again found himself in France awaiting the command of a new ship. It would be almost another year before Jones received a new ship to command. So we'll have to pick up Jones's exploits in a future episode after he receives a new ship. In the meantime, next week we return to upstate New York to talk about the West Point chain. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, 
never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week, and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution podcast after show. My thanks as always to Alexander Hamilton Club level supporters on Patreon, Trey Nance and George Davis. Thanks also to David Stapple, who made a one-time contribution via PayPal. It also occurred to me that while I give a shout out to supporters who make a substantial donation to the show, many of you have been giving much smaller amounts for a long time. Eric Larson, Deborah Wallison, Allison Scott, and Desmond Johnson are among my longest supporters on Patreon, and I greatly appreciate your continued support as well. This week I introduced John Paul Jones. While he was not the first Continental Navy officer to threaten the British in their home waters, he did manage to step up the pressure by attacking the British mainland. The threat from American raiders not only fell on ships at sea, but now also on seacoast towns, which had reason to worry as well. Word of Jones's raid created even further panic among many Englishmen for their security. The British Navy even had to deploy a fleet to the Irish Sea in order to help calm local fears. Of course, Jones's most famous exploits would come later and will be the topic of future episodes. I did mention in this episode the home invasion on the Earl of Selkirk. Jones was ashamed of the theft of Selkirk's silver. Shortly after his return to France, he wrote a letter to Lady Selkirk apologizing for the attack. He also promised to buy back the silver and return it to her. Lord Selkirk wrote an angry response telling him to keep the silver. Jones had threatened his pregnant wife and now seemed to want to be pen pals. Selkirk also noted that he very much doubted that King George would have traded American prisoners for a minor Scottish lord who had generally been friendly to the liberties of America. The two men traded a few more letters over the next few years, in which Lord Selkirk calmed down a little bit and expressed some appreciation that the raid had been relatively disciplined and appreciated Jones's efforts to return his silver. Jones eventually did return the Selkirk silver years later after the war had ended. Following Jones's return to France and the loss of his ship, Jones spent considerable time in France. He would spend several months of that time planning attacks against Britain with the Marquis de Lafayette after the young generals returned to France from America. This would have been a much larger raid on Britain than the raid on Whitehaven. Their plans, however, got scuttled after France planned an even larger full-scale invasion of Britain. 
France did not want a smaller attack that might cause Britain to strengthen its coastal defenses while France was planning its full-fledged invasion. Of course, France scuttled that larger invasion as well, so nothing ever came of any of it. Jones would eventually get command of the ship the Bonhomme Richard, which he used in his most famous naval action later in the war. And that, of course, will be a topic of a future episode. Jones's later life spins out of control after the U.S. shuts down its navy, and Jones goes back to Europe looking for work there. There is a disturbing event later in his life where Jones is accused of raping a 12-year-old girl. It's sometimes hard to deal with the character flaws of men who contributed so much to the founding of the country. I think we need to be aware of both the good and the bad, celebrate the good while acknowledging the bad. If you want to read more about John Paul Jones, my book recommendation is one of several biographies about the man. This one is called John Paul Jones, Hero, Father of the American Navy by Evan Thomas. The book's been around a while, uh, first published in 2003. It's just over 300 pages, not counting the notes and index, and it gives a pretty good detail about Jones's life. The author, Evan Thomas, is probably best known for being editor of Newsweek magazine for many years, as well as his appearances as a TV commentator. He's written a great many books, most of which have had to do with more recent topics or people. Jones's fame received a boost in the early 20th century when the U.S. moved his body from its burial place in France to a new tomb built for him at the Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. Capitalizing on this fame, there are a great many early 20th century biographies about the man, which you can find on archive.org. However, for my online recommendation, I went to his original memoirs. Near the end of his life, Jones published a set of personal memoirs that became a two-volume book about his life. Of course, like all memoirs, this is rather one-sided and self-serving account of his life, but it does provide an interesting insight into the man. I've included links to both volumes, which are available on archive.org under the title Memoirs of Rear Admiral Paul Jones. You can search for it there yourself or use the direct link that I've provided on my blog or website. Go to www.amrevpodcast.com for more details. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.